The U.S. Supreme Court makes it easier to talk to your boss about religious exemptions. Maybe. From SDPB Radio, today is Tuesday, July 11th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we talk with USF professor Mike Thompson about recent U.S. Supreme Court decisions. Today, we focus on religion and public life. Then, Hanny Shafi makes his way into the South Dakota Hall of Fame. We get to know the developer and engineer. We'll also talk about his impact in determining what makes a community and what makes a home. Plus, we stand at the intersection of poetry and politics. The South Dakota Poetry Society's recommendations for Poet Laureate were declined by Governor Kristi Noem. We'll explore that controversy later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. Valley Queen Cheese from Millbank, South Dakota, is officially the big cheese. The Neff and Gunzebach families have been named recipients of the 2023 Governor's Ag Ambassador Award. Time to talk dairy. She has now found her buttons. Annalise <laughs> <laughs> Sefrud, granddaughter of Alfred Neff, uh, Ag Ambassadors Awards. Congratulations, first Thank of all. Thank you. I was very surprised to get the phone call and ask really? if I would represent the family because I didn't know we'd been nominated. Okay. I didn't really know anything about it. And my first response is, Ag Ambassadors, really? And then I paused to think about it because Alfred and Shorty, or Gunsey and Shorty as they were known, they were both Alfred. So you can't okay. call them Alfred one and Alfred two. So Alfred Gunzenbach became Gunsey, and my grandfather was shorter, became Shorty. Both lived in town. Their sons, Max and my father, Rudy, lived in town. I grew up in town. So I didn't think Valley Queen was necessarily ag. And now as a grown-up, middle-aged adult, um, have come to appreciate the how big ag is. It's more than just farming. Yeah. It's the whole industry. It's the whole industry. So what does being ag ambassador mean? It's a great honor, first of yeah. all. But uh, what are the responsibilities? I'm not sure. I think we're just, you know, kind of champions. And um, like I said, I grew up in town. Yeah. And the idea came up in the late 90s for my husband and I, instead of working for Valley Queen, to start a dairy farm. And all my high school classmates looked at me and they're like, you, a farmer milking cows. Um, you and never get to go anywhere for the rest of your life. Right. I so, hope you like where you live because you're not leaving. <laughs> right. Well, modern dairy has changed. Exactly. Yeah. That That's one of the changeovers. Um, people do get time off. that was the stereotype. That was the stereotype. My it. classmates yeah. were like, my parents never got a day off. They yeah. worked 24-7, never came to events. Um, so my husband and I, John, and I started a dairy farm in 1998-99 and um, operated North Swiss Dairy. And so that introduced me into the farmer side yeah. of Valley Queen and, oh, that milk has to come from somewhere. And in fact, today it comes from about 80,000 cows along the I-29 corridor um, from as far south as Flandreau area um, up to Veblen at the North Dakota border and into western Minnesota. Um, Currently, Valley Queen receives roughly 5 million pounds of milk per day. Those truckloads that you see rolling down the highway, the small semis are 6,000 gallons, which is about 50,000 pounds. The big ones are getting seven, 8,000 gallons, which would be 70,000 pounds of milk per load. And they're just continually ro excuse me, rolling in. And that 5 million pounds of milk it's roughly 10 pounds of milk for one pound of cheese. 
<laughs> so roughly half a million pounds of cheese rolls are, out. The rolls wheels, out. The wheels of cheese the, roll it, out. And it is a twenty, just like the dairy farms are a twenty-four-seven operation. The plant is a twenty-four-seven operation that they get done with one day, clean up, and they start over again. Tell me how important it is to be a member of your community. Then, not just as you know, we're an ag. And we're reaching the farmers. We need to know where the milk is coming from, what's in it, what the you know processes are, but also taking care of your workers um, right. in a community where you know everybody knows each other. Right. They're going to know what it's like to work for Valley Queen. When I was in college, I worked in the lab for two summers. One, it taught me summer jobs aren't what you have to do for the rest of your life because biology was not where I wanted <laughs> to go. I, I learned. So all you high school kids out there, summer jobs can tell you what you don't, don't want to do as much as they'll tell you what you do want to do. And when I was working the summers of 1989 and 90, there were maybe 50 employees at Valley Queen. And today I think we're over 300. And with the current expansion project, that will take us from 5 million pounds of milk a day to 8 million pounds of milk per day. Um, we're going to grow another 150 employees. So we'll be 400, 450 employees in the Millbank area. Um, some of the truck drivers, the milk haulers, you don't have to live locally in Millbank. So if we've got a crew that operates out of Sisseton, because you can get in that milk, you know, one truck driver can get out right. and the next milk hauler, the truck driver can get in. So we've got a group based in Sisseton. We're, I think, establishing a base in Morris, Minnesota, you know, the Watertown area. So not all of the employees have to live right in Millbank. Yeah. Majority are in the plant in town. What's next for Valley Queen? What are you looking forward to in the future? Well, we're in the middle of this big expansion project. Yeah. It's just under $200 million that we broke ground on a year ago. Um, the project should be completed the end of 24, so fully operational the beginning of 2025. Um, back in the early 2000s, Valley Queen was processing about a million pounds of milk a day. Then they went to 3 million. We expanded to 5 million. This will take us to 8 million. It's a question. What, what's the next phase? Um, the town of Millbank, it's about as big as we can be within that community. Um, I am very pleased to be serving on the board of directors as a third generation NEF. Yeah, yeah. Um, Derek Gunzenbach, the fourth generation grandson of Max or great grandson of Alfred Gunzi Gunzenbach is also serving on the board along with another one of my sisters, Rebecca. And it's one of the big decisions of where do we go next and what's the future of the company. Um, we're at 95 years yeah. in 2023, so the project will be completed just before we hit 100, and so then it's where do we go after 100 years. And do you have nicknames now? For? Yourself, Gunsy and Shorty. I'm Gunsy and saying, Shorty. I think you should keep that going. Well, it was Max and Rudy. <laughs> I don't know that they had nicknames going up. Um, yeah, not, not the way they did, but when you're two Swiss immigrants rolling into town in 19... 28 is when they first arrived in Millbank. You know, Gunsey was on his way to Montana, and I had lost where in Montana he was yeah. going. I, and finally, in um, cleaning out some stuff, we found old newspapers. And he had said in one of the articles, I think back in 1979 for the 50th anniversary, that he was heading to Three Rivers, Montana. Okay. And um, 
Two of my children are currently in Bozeman. Number three is heading to Montana State to be in Bozeman. Three Rivers is just 30 miles west, and my husband and I made it there a year ago. <laughs> and the key at Three Rivers is the start of the Missouri River. Okay. That yeah. that's where the three rivers merge to become the Missouri that is a defining feature of South Dakota. Remarkable stuff. Ag Ambassadors, Valley Queen Cheese, Annalise Seffer. Thank you so much for being here. I hope you come back again. Uh, my pleasure. This was very enjoyable. Thank you so much. We'll talk to the U.S. Supreme Court after the break on listener-supported SDPB Radio. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. The U.S. Supreme Court recently released their decisions for the session. I sat down with Mike Thompson to wade through the cases, the decisions, and their implications. You'll hear parts of our conversation throughout the week. Mike Thompson is an associate professor of criminal justice at the University of Sioux Falls. Let's begin with two recent cases that touch on religion in public life. 303 Creative versus Illness featured a web designer who argued that the state could not force her to serve LGBTQ clients because doing so would require her to express something she doesn't believe. Groff v. DeJoy featured a UPS worker who said that working on Sunday violated his religious beliefs. Professor Thompson and I talked about the legal implications of these decisions and how they could ripple through your workplace. We have a flurry of cases uh, to discuss as the Supreme Court wraps up their session. And uh, we have been seeing over the past, I don't know, few years, but certainly in this session, the idea of religion and public life come up again and again with this court. Am I imagining that? Or are you seeing also, it, you know, I don't know if it's a trend. Right. I don't think you're imagining it, no. I think th that beginning with... COVID-19 and all the court's emergency orders and things, I think, I think that religion is something the court is keeping track of. All right. So Colorado had a baker a few years back. Yes. Who did not want to bake a cake for a gay wedding. And that went all the way to the Supreme Court. Now Colorado has a web designer. How right. are those two cases different? Because they both involve creative professionals saying they do not want to work for a client who they say their religion is, 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 it would be against their religion right. to accept that business. In the, in the cake case, uh, that was specifically based on the religion clauses in the first. That, that wasn't treated as a First Amendment free speech case. In the, this case that the court decided this past week, it's called 303 Creative versus Ellenus. In that one, that's a First Amendment free speech issue, not a religion issue, even though she said that she didn't want to do anything that would uh, not align with traditional biblical principles. So there's a religious overtone, so to speak, with it, but it is a free speech. It is a free speech case and not a religion case. Okay, so her argument was essentially, I'm a web designer, I don't want to do a web design for whom and why? Right, she didn't want to do a web design for, for a gay couple because she didn't uh, want her website, which all the parties agreed was expressive behavior, was expressive speech. She didn't want that used to espouse a view with which she disagreed. Um, the, the, and with this case, like any, uh, any Supreme Court or any court case, 
the parties have to show that they have a live case or controversy. So oftentimes the first, the first question in a case is whether a litigant has what we refer to as standing. Do they have an injury that the courts can redress? So the first question here was uh, Colorado's got a public accommodations law that says she's public-facing, uh, she needs to not discriminate, essentially. Uh, the, uh, Colorado had not enforced the law against her. She asked the court to enjoin them or to stop them from enforcing the law against her if she decided not to create the website for that reason. So it's largely hypothetical uh, in yeah. the sense that it's not like she lost business or somebody else lost the opportunity to it's very much ahead before i before i do this what's going to happen to me exactly yeah okay. she she asked the court to stop colorado from enforcing the public accommodations law against her and her expressive activity um and the court did the the, the first thing the court decided was uh the colorado statute presents a credible threat to her first amendment protections so that's why the court decided that she exhibited enough of an injury to seek redress in the courts. So the justices, the opinion and the dissent, it almost looks like they are looking at two different cases. I mean, they really view this as two, which I totally get because yeah. listeners today are probably, on, uh, we have these core values. We don't want anyone to force us. We don't want the state to force us to say things that we don't believe. Right. That's abhorrent to us. On the other hand, we believe in the dignity and uh, the right for people <laughs> to yeah. be human beings and not face discrimination because of what this nation has already been through regarding this. And these two things are at clash in this case. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Yet the dissent, uh, the dissent in this one, um, talked about a case that is based on religion. It, it's called Macon. One of the parties is. Uh, uh, a person named Macon, and it was about the state of Maine um, not choosing to fund religious-based institutions, uh, religious-based educational institutions at a time when it was funding other uh, institutions. So that was actually based on a religion question, which is, it wasn't based on expression as protected by the first. So I, I think the dissent grabs onto these this the the religious nature kind of of this free speech claim in the 303 creative case and does talk about the public accommodations law and the purposes of them uh and it, it the dissent does get to uh, some first amendment principles uh, it talk the dissent talks about hey this public accommodations law is a generally applicable law it's not specifically targeted toward expression so since it's a law of general applicability and not directed at expression it's not entitled to first amendment analysis which is <laughs> a complicated legal um legal rule um What's but, the difference between expressing your opinion and taking action that is discriminatory against another human being? Uh, because refusal to s serve somebody feels like an action, not just an expression of her. Like if she goes on Facebook and says, I, I, I would never serve someone from the LGBTQ community, well, so what? That's protected speech. But if somebody comes in 
then that's discrimination because you're taking an action now. What's where is that oh, line? Great, great, great question. Um, and it, there's a there's an answer that is probably not satisfying for you because in, or anyone. Yeah. <laughs> in, in this case. In this case. In, in yeah. this case, the parties entered into stipulation. Entered into a stipulation. Normally, uh, in this kind of an action, a judge determines what the facts are and decides what law applies to those facts. When there's a trial, the jury is the finder of fact and the judge is the lawgiver. So in this case, the parties, the state of Colorado and uh, uh, 303 Creative, they agreed that what she was doing was expressive activity. Uh, and they agreed on, on all sorts of other facts which, which really sort of set the stage for the court to go the way that it did. The judge didn't have to determine if her activities were expressive or whether they were action. Um, and uh, a first, uh, we do have a First Amendment protection over action. It's not as strong as it is over pure speech, but we do have First Amendment protections over action. Uh, so the, the, the stipulations, the agreements that the parties made in this case really set it up for it to be decided the way it was. So then how limited or narrow is the decision for everybody who owns a business and says, and their business is a creative expression, um, whether that means you're an artist or a musician or a web designer <laughs> or right. a cake decorator, what's changed for you? Because if it's narrow in that sense, um, who can you serve? Who can you not? And right. <laughs> I think if you're, I think if you're engaged in experience, Expressive activity. If your business is expression, then according to this decision, you can decide what you want your expression to entail, what message you want your expressions to entail. And the government, according to the majority here, the government can't force you to espouse uh, a view with which you disagree. If it's expressive, if it's expressive. If you're a tattoo artist and somebody wants a tattoo that you find is not an expression of your right <laughs> but does it have to be more than just i don't like that i mean because she doesn't she did not in this case have to prove any kind of religious conviction no the, the, that, that the is court not part of this not, case yeah. no exactly what the okay. religion clauses are not part of this case hmm. how big the, is this case then it, it always it always depends uh yeah the I don't think the the court this court is really in line with a, a bunch of old precedent about the protection given to expressive activity. Um, there were some uh, in the '60s, '70s, some public nudity cases um, where the where the justices had to determine uh, whether a person whether being naked in public uh, was a protected expression. Uh, and they'd ended up the the way the court then and Scalia was a big part of this, and of course he, um, Amy Coney Barrett was his clerk. But Scalia said if the if the law is generally applicable, so these public nudity laws that were being attacked as a violation of the First Amendment, they applied to nudity in public anywhere, not just in a dancing situation. Mm. So Scalia said since it's a generally applicable law, it's not entitled to the stringent First Amendment protection. Of 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 uh, an activity that is admittedly expressive. Hmm. So yeah, I, I yes, all right. But I want to make sure that we talk about this other religion case. Okay. Tell he us does. a little bit about Groff 
V. DeJoy. The, the first distinction is that this is uh, not, it's not a religion clauses First Amendment constitutional case. This is a statutory case where the court is interpreting congressional statute, uh, Title VII. So the, the distinction there is the court's deciding it on a statutory basis, which means that Congress, if, the Congress, if Congress doesn't like the court's decision, Congress can change the language of the statute. Okay. The court's deciding, deciding it based on the Constitution, Congress can't change that result with, with legislation. So this is a t- it's a Title VII case. Um, and he had to give, according to Title VII, he's got to give notice of uh, his religious belief and ask for an accommodation. And the way the court had interpreted Title VII in the past is that, well, if that presents anything more than a de minimis hardship on the employer, then the employer doesn't have to accommodate the religious action or belief. So the case was about, okay, what is the standard? Is, is it de minimis? Meaning that if, if me having to accommodate your religious belief is minimal, uh, then I have to do it. But if it's anything more than minimal, mm. <clears throat> then I do have, then I don't have to do it. So this, it isn't, uh, this isn't that big of a watershed case because both of the, the, each party agreed that de minimis is not the correct standard. So we, they, go, they go up to the Supreme Court saying, we both agree de minimis is the incorrect standard, but here's, and one side says, here's what we think the standard should be. The other side says, no, here's what we think the standard should be. The Supreme Court wound up in the middle of, of, this, <laughs> of this one. Um, <clears throat> and they agreed that it, it, has to be, uh, it has to be a substantial, the accommodation has to result in substantial increased cost to the employer before the employer doesn't have to accommodate the religious preference. My favorite part of this case is that atheists sign on in an amicus brief saying, we yeah. got to do your work for you when you stay home on Sunday, <laughs> <Right>. essentially, which <laughs> is a fair point. And the, yeah. you know, the agreement with the unions, the other employees that have to, it's a small branch, yep. they're going to have to cover for you. Yep. Um, is, is that relevant at all when we look at a, um, at a changing American society? It is relevant. Yeah. Yeah, it goes into determining what whether the hardship on the employer is undue, <clears throat> which is heavily fact-dependent. But this, this uh, person did, uh, he did transfer to a rural carrier, uh, which wasn't delivering Amazon, and that was going well. Uh, but then that small outfit decided to deliver Amazon too, so then he had, a, he had a problem. But then they started disciplining him for not showing up to work on Sunday, so... So if all the quit. Christians who consider Sunday their Sabbath stay home and say, <laughs> are they, I guess my question is, if you are a Christian, for example, and there are yes. other examples we can use, yep. and you live in South Dakota and you've been told you got to work on Sundays because, you know, um, that's the rule, did anything just change for you? Uh, it became easier for you to do that. Because now the, the once once I go to my employer and say, hey, I, I don't want to work on Sunday. You need to accommodate my religious belief. Then the burden falls on the employer to show that, well, accommodating that is going to cause us undue hardship, which means there have to be some substantial costs to the accommodation. So then it's up to the employer. The burden shifts to the employer to show those 
those substantial costs, which is going to be more proof than was required under the previous standard. Interesting. Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. As an engineer and developer, Hanny Shaffey knows what it means to build community in the literal sense as well as the figurative. Hanny has maintained and built upon his own sense of belonging and home throughout his life. He's also fostered that sense of place as he creates communities people are proud to call their homes across western South Dakota. Now he is being inducted into the 2023 South Dakota Hall of Fame, and he is with me in the Kirby Family Studio here in Sioux Falls. You came East River today. Welcome. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me, and uh, I really appreciate you uh, giving me the time. Congratulations on this honor. What does it mean to you? Um, you are born and raised in the Gaza Strip, and here you are, South Dakota Hall of Fame. This is also your home. It is a great honor, and it is really unexpected. Uh, uh, it reflects the quality of life within our state and the welcoming nature and generosity of our people within South Dakota. Tell me a little bit about your philosophy for development. You put humanity first, it says, in your nominating materials. What, is, what does that mean? You have a bottom line, and then you have people, and sometimes you're making decisions how do you make those decisions based on what it means to be human and living in a community and using the infrastructure of a place? It is really uh, our duty as professionals in any profession to evaluate the needs of our communities and the needs of the people surrounding us and to try to satisfy those needs. And after we do that and put that as the priority, Profit comes afterwards, and if we do that, always it always works. And in our case, we really do as designers and as developers evaluate the needs of our communities from affordable housing, wages, education, healthcare, and retail, and try to uh, uh, make our developments reflect and satisfy those needs. What do you love about the Black Hills and the, the communities that you have become part of and really have helped helped create? What resonates for you? When you go, when you go to the Gaza Strip and people say, tell me about your home, what do you say? You know, it's, uh, you know people don't realize it. You know, uh, we always have a false picture of things that we have not experienced. Uh, so the people of you know back home in Gaza, they think that America is easy life and what have you, and money grows in the trees and what have you, and they don't realize that there is poverty. There are communities that have diversified levels of social and economic structure, just like the Gaza Strip. It might be more challenging in the Gaza Strip than in. South Dakota, Western South Dakota has its own challenges, just like the Gaza Strip yeah. does. One of the things when I think about Gaza, and I haven't been there, so I have my own misperceptions, but I think it's supported by the documentation for your nomination, is that uh, there's a great sense of possibility and a great need for adaptability, for rebuilding when things are torn asunder. 
Tell me a little bit about how those two things inform your work. You know, the needs in the Gaza Strip, uh, you know, of course, there are economic and political things that don't exist anywhere else in the world. You know, it's crowded. Uh, it is a very confined place, and it has limited possibilities and opportunities. So therefore, uh, you have to be really creative. Uh, so the higher density uh, developments and sometimes redevelopments because every war that happens creates destruction, which unfortunately uh, it is uh, the way of life, which is really uh, a need to be stopped and hopefully a solution will happen there. Uh, those uh, economic and political challenges really exist you know, to a limited uh, uh, case in western South Dakota. You know, we have our native population that has really, uh, over the years, uh, has limited abilities and limited opportunities within the reservations. So we try to improve their situations. We work a lot with the native population in western South Dakota. There is also a lot of poverty within certain neighborhoods within the uh, city and within the Black Hills because of lack of wages. So we try to work in improving the wage scale. So we try to develop businesses that create opportunities for the people. And, uh, and I try to satisfy the needs for housing, you know, because as you know, the largest investment that most families do is in their house. And uh, if they don't own a house, Sometimes they don't have the ability to create a future for their children, you know, by saving into that house and also spending the money in a high rent, you know, sometimes does not really yield any uh, savings for them. Yeah. What difference does it make to have a home, whether that means a house or just a community, that you love, that you feel part of, that you feel is functioning, what does that do for people's lives? You know, it creates, you know, a better future for their children and uh, a stable house in which children are granted the ability to go to school without fear and uh, being able to have food at the table. Uh, being able to provide an environment at the family in which there is lack of tension, that always improves the quality of life for the future generations. I was fortunate enough to really leave the Gaza Strip where those challenges existed. And uh, given a life in South Dakota and in the U.S., you know, not too many of the people from the Gaza Strip are given such an opportunity. It is a great blessing. It is a great honor to be welcomed into our state, which has given me a lot more than I deserve. And anything that I do currently is really limited compared to what the state has given me. I have not given enough to really repay our state for what it has uh, offered me over the last 40 years. Wow. That is a, a lot of humility in that statement, knowing everything that you have done. How is philanthropy and, and some of the, the efforts to get people together in a community 
uh, talk about services that people still need aside from your development work. Um, you're also working with other people in the community to say where is the need and how do we address it? Which one's harder? Which one's more complicated? You know, uh, nothing is really impossible if we give ourselves a chance to work on it and work on it collectively. And collective uh, collaboration among all the people or among the, all the entities will yield good results. Uh, currently, we have challenges in our workforce development. And uh, we work across the state you know, with different agencies in a collective manner to really improve that, regardless if it is utilizing our native population or refugees like the Ukraine refugees or immigrant workers or what have you, to really uh, work on improving the productivity because we have a lot of resources within our state. And if we don't utilize those resources to serve our citizens of our state, you know, we will be doing the service to them. And so therefore, improving the wages, improving the education, improving the health care, you know, and, uh, you, know, you know, being able to participate in scholarships and what have you, those are duties of each one of us because philanthropy is not really just, you know, thinking about giving or giving very limited. Everything that we have, we're never going to be able to take it with us to the grave. Nobody has ever done that before. Even the pharaohs that are buried with all the gold, we're digging it out as, <laughs> you know, archaeologists <laughs> and what have you and finding it out today. So therefore, uh, everything we have has been given to us by God, and we are only a conduit to really share it with other people who need it worse than we do. So therefore, you know, don't think about the materials. Think about what you leave behind you after you're gone. When you're in a room with people in the Black Hills specifically, and the work, the collaboration is maybe falling apart a little bit, and you can see fear creep into a conversation or doubt um, or a, a, a sense of scarcity perhaps sort of arises. What are some of the ways that you can overcome that? Because we don't always reach our highest aspirations of service or collaboration um, or vision. When it falls apart, how do you intervene? Communications. You know, communication is the, or miscommunication or lack of communication or uh, false perceptions are the biggest obstacles for against prog uh, progress. And if we improve communication and really give the true picture of any topic, regardless of what it is, we will achieve good results. And in our case, in our Western South Dakota, you know, we have misconception of, you know, the poor and rich and uh, state versus city or city versus community or they're all misperceptions you know uh, and they all work towards the good of the people regardless if it is the state government or the city government or nobody is working towards you know less 
quality of life for our citizens. Everyone collectively works towards improving the quality of life. Unfortunately, we tend to work individually instead of collectively. So therefore, the impact on our communities is a lot less than what it can be. And I think if we do improve the communications, I think it will, a lot of things will happen. And nothing is impossible. Everything is possible. We should not limit our dreams. We should expand our dreams and envision a better life. And nothing that we think we cannot do as people uh, or historic past, you know, limiting us or perceptions limiting us from those from achieving our goals is all false perception. Mm-hmm. I think we could do a lot for our people, and I think we're going in the right direction. Annie Shafi, you are um, inspiring and wise, and I am very grateful to spend uh, time and share the microphone with you today. Congratulations, and thank you for stopping by. Thank you for having me, and I really appreciate our stay for giving me a home away from home. Thank you. Let's take a moment now for South Dakota history. During this week in 2007, a gold mine got a scientific second life. The National Science Foundation selected the former Homestake Gold Mine in Lead as the site for the Deep Underground Science and Engineering Laboratory. The formal process of reassigning the mission of the mine kicked off a year earlier. Governor Mike Rounds signed papers transferring ownership of the mine from Barrick Gold to the state of South Dakota. The site now operates as the Sanford Underground Research Facility, also known as SURF. The research facility offers a near-perfect environment for world-class physics experiments. It provides scientific depth and rock stability, meaning the experiments are shielded from the bombardment of cosmic radiation. Scientific research was underway even before Homestake ended its 126-year run as the largest and deepest gold mine in North America. In the mid-1960s, Dr. Ray Davis, a chemist from Brookhaven National Lab, started building a solar neutrino experiment on the 4850 level of the mine. That work earned Dr. Davis the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2002, and that's when the National Science Foundation took note and began planning to renovate and transition the mine into a research center. One of the first steps was forming the South Dakota Science and Technology Authority. That new agency committed $40 million, with an additional $70 million coming from T. Denny Sanford. Although the facility would not be formally dedicated and operational for another couple of years, it was during this week, in 2007, that the National Science Foundation picked the former Homestate gold mine in Lead as the site for the Deep Underground Science and Engineering Laboratory. Production assistance for This Week in South Dakota History comes from Brad Tennant, visiting professor of history at Dakota Wesleyan University. Coming up next, the deadline has passed for Governor Kristi Noem to appoint a new Poet Laureate. We'll explain what happened after the break on listener-supported SDPB Radio.
You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. We're going to take an in-depth look now into the controversy surrounding the state's top poetry post. The term of South Dakota's Poet Laureate is four years. It begins July 1st, the year following gubernatorial elections. That's according to a 2015 state law that updated the selection process. But this year, Governor Kristi Noem has not appointed a Poet Laureate. Now, picking a Poet Laureate is supposed to be non-political. That requirement was designed by law during the 2015 legislative session. Lawmakers were determined to keep politics out of poetry. Republican Senator Cory Brown was the prime sponsor of Senate Bill 86. He gave his testimony in verse. Though I have no gift for rhyme and meter, I stand in open session to pitch this bill pertaining to the Poet Laureate's succession. Despite my longing looks for the committee to move consent, I stand and ask you now, assured and... Lee Schoenbeck was a state representative at the time. He spontaneously recited Badger Clark during debate. We lack sophistication. Our lives are all frustration. We South Dakotans, so some writers say. According to those novels, we mostly live in hovels, and all our days are dull and drab and gray. We flounder in futility, punch drunk to imbecility, from dust and debt and drought and dying kin. Aridity, frigidity, yet I and my stupidity. I've lived here 50 years and like it fine. I nearly froze my gizzard in one rip-roaring... Badger Clark was was the state's first poet laureate, by the way. He was a cowboy poet. He preferred to be called the Poet Lariat. Senator Deb Soholt pointed out that the text of Senate Bill 86, should it pass, would be printed partially in haiku form. Governor Dennis Dugard's office expressed concern that the Poetry Society Board might offer a candidate unpalatable to future governors. Dugard's amendment to Senate Bill 86 was defeated, however, after Senator Dean Wink declared... I agree with the good representative that maybe the society is in a, in a better position to, uh, to nominate uh, the poet laureates than the governor. So Senate Bill 86 passed. It says, quote, No person may be appointed unless such person has been recommended to the governor by the South Dakota Poetry Society and has written and published poems of recognized merit prior to the appointment. Now, the governor is not required to approve the board's recommendation for Poet Laureate. Governor Dugard approved the appointment of Poet Leanne Roripaw in 2015. Governor Nome celebrated Poet Christine Stewart's passion for poetry when she appointed Stewart to the post in 2019. Christine Stewart moved to Canada midterm, taking an academic position at a new university. Governor Nome declined to accept the society's recommendation for an interim poet laureate. And now the governor's silence on a new appointee threatens to leave the state without a top poet. Poet Laureate Emeritus Christine Stewart says, since the laureate is not a paid position, whomever is chosen must be an effective collaborator, as well as a poet of merit. And so it makes me really sad that the board's choice didn't get confirmed by the governor, because I know the board knew that they could work with their choice, that they believed in that person's track record and their quality of their own work and what they had in mind moving forward. So it's just a loss, you know, it's just a loss for 
that new work to happen under that that official poet laureate title. So as far as we are concerned, uh, with the deadline having come and gone, we will go you know, without a poet laureate for the next four years. That's Dana Yost. He's the current president of the South Dakota State Poetry Society. It's an important cultural position in the state. South Dakota has had a poet laureate since 1926, and that person is a leading advocate for not only for poetry but for the arts. And so it's a very important position, and it's just you know it's disappointing that we're going to go we're going to go vacant for four years. SDPB has confirmed the Poetry Society Board selected poet Bruce Roseland as its first choice. Roseland is a fourth-generation cattle rancher from north-central South Dakota. He's written several poetry collections. He's a South Dakota humanities scholar. He's a former board president, and he is winner of multiple Will Rogers medallions in poetry. Now, Roseland resigned as Poetry Board President on October 16th of 2022. He told board members he was interested in putting his name in for the post. Those applications opened on November 1st of that year. He was also the citizen who helped bring the nonpartisan Poet Laureate Bill to the state legislature back in 2015. Now, since that recommendation, Bruce Roseland has been accused of having inside information about the application process. That means he read emails regarding another poet's application before he resigned as president himself. Rosalind denies allegations of wrongdoing. He points out that he forwarded all the emails regarding applicants to the new board leadership once he resigned as president. He says politics are getting in the way of poetry. Uh, It should be based on merit and merit alone. And it should be judged that way, and it should be judged about how they want to be uh, active, to go out and be an ambassador to the state and poetry. It's not about the person. I think poetry is a wonderful thing. It's a great way of self-expression for people. That's why. Based on merit, based on the level of, of desire that people want to get out there and mingle with the people and have a program. Governor Nome's office wanted a different poet to receive the board's nomination, Joseph Bottom. Now, Bottom is director of the Classics Institute at Dakota State University. He's written more than 800 essays, poems, reviews, and short stories. He's the poetry editor of the New York Sun. And in 2022, he was commissioned to write the Phi Beta Kappa poem for Princeton University. He lives in Spearfish. Bottom applied for the position, but he did not receive votes from the board members after his interview. We reached out to Joseph Bottom for a statement, and here's what he sent us via email. Quote, It seems a sadness that the Poetry Society would politicize what ought to be a literary decision in the name of their dislike of conservative intellectualism and desire to promote one of their own in crowd. As probably the most published author in South Dakota, I cherish my family's deep roots in the state and am grateful to be considered for any position that might contribute to our shared South Dakota. After the governor rejected Bruce Roseland's name, the Poetry Society submitted a second recommendation to the governor's office. They did not receive a response. The name of that poet has not been released. Governor Christy Nome's office, by the way, did not respond to several requests for comment for this story. 
And you can find and share this story online, stpb.org slash news. We'll post it after today's show. That's our show for today. We hope that it served you on tomorrow's In the Moment. We look back at one year of science and beauty from the James Webb Space Telescope. Tune in for that from all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening. <laughs>